This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Welcome back to another episode of The Law School Show. My name is Abby Shields. I'm the producer of The Law School Show and your host for today's episode. I'm joined today by Charmaine Panko, collaborative lawyer, mediator, arbitrator, and trainer, practicing at her own firm, Panko Collaborative Law and Mediation, out of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. She is also a sessional lecturer at the University of Saskatchewan's College of Law, where she teaches advanced negotiations in family law. Charmaine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So the main topic of today's episode is a recent legislative change in Saskatchewan, which basically mandates early family dispute resolution in certain family law proceedings. So this means that couples in Saskatchewan looking to separate, divorce, etc., have to pursue alternate processes to resolve disputes, like a collaborative law process, mediation, arbitration, before they can bring these matters to court. As a professional working in this space, you are, of course, perfectly positioned to discuss some of the nuances of how this legislation will affect families in Saskatchewan. But before we get to that, I was hoping to discuss your path to practicing family law and how you got involved with the practice of collaborative law. So if we could travel backwards a bit, what was your journey to and through law school like? So I actually, I I grew up in small town Saskatchewan and had aspirations of being an actress. And so I went to university right out of high school to uh, pursue that dream, ended up in New York City and then in Toronto and then back to Saskatchewan. And by the time we got back to Saskatchewan, I was thinking, well, Saskatchewan isn't where I'm going to pursue my dream of being an actress. My husband, who is also a, uh, an entertainer uh, still, and he's a stand-up comedian. He had gotten involved in uh, some legal matters, and we had received this bill from a lawyer in the mail. And I said to my husband, you know, when I was a little girl, I always thought when I grew up one day I'd be an actress or a psychologist or a lawyer. And maybe that whole actress dream is behind me. And now I should look into becoming a lawyer so that we have our own in-house counsel for when these things come up. And so that was sort of the origin story of my return to school. At that point, um, I already was a mom. We had three children and um, I didn't have uh, enough of an undergrad to be able to enter directly into law school. So I started to take one undergrad class at a time, um, once per semester, and eventually had uh, the two years required to then uh, make my application. And my thought process at that time was, if I didn't get in, I would just keep trying. Because one of my life philosophies is people can only say no to me so many times. So I figured (laughs) if I didn't get in without a an actual undergrad degree, I would just continue to pursue a psychology degree until I, but as it turned out, I was accepted into the college and I actually um, attended as a part-time student. So I had applied as a mature student being that this was sort of a return to school for me on a part-time basis, because at that time, then by then we had four children. And in my first year of law school um, discovered we were expecting 
expecting our fifth uh, child. So they're going on a part-time basis, um, helping my husband with his business, and he was on the road a lot. And so I went to law school then for five years. Uh, it's a three-year program out of the University of Saskatchewan, but I went for the five years. And um, it was a great experience for me because as a part-time student, I had this illusion that I had all sorts of extra time so I could do things like be on the law review and head up uh, committees and get really involved in other things in addition to actually taking my uh, courses. So that's what law school was like for me. That's a fascinating journey to law school. So uh, what in particular drew you to family law? Was this something that was sort of in your mind when you were going through law school? Well, the irony to this is that if you had asked me when I was applying to law school, my intention was simply to work for myself uh, within my husband's entertainment agency at the in-house counsel. Um, if I wasn't going to do that, I'd maybe be a criminal lawyer because I watched lots of Law and & Order and I thought it looked cool. Plus, I read Nancy Drew books when I was a kid and she wasn't a lawyer, but her dad was. And somehow, I think that's why I had aspirations of being a lawyer. Um, but the one thing I would have told you in year one of law school journey was that no, I didn't know for sure what I would do. But the one area I knew I would never work in was family law. And so the irony is, of course, I find myself now working primarily in that area. And when I reflected upon that question, I say, well, how did I go from like, I'll never work in family law to where I'm at is that I think it came by virtue of my um, passion for children and for families. A uh, part of that is likely because of our family too. We now have 11 children and uh, four grandchildren, fifth grandchild uh, coming in July here shortly. And I and I think just because I care about children and and families and, and the firm that I started with when there were family things that came through the door, they kind of naturally came to me. And then over time, I, I developed an interest and it became really kind of my area of specialty. Right. So you picked on this point with your uh, allusion to uh, law and order, but in law school, I think there's lots of different voices, whether it be sort of professors, other students, lawyers, your friends and family, uh, media representation, that paint a certain picture or at times competing conceptions maybe of what it's like to practice certain areas of law. So mm -hmm. are there any common misconceptions about practicing family law that you discovered to be untrue once you started practicing? Definitely. I mean, I think that um, the very first thing, and, and maybe this applies to all areas of law, but certainly for family, is that there's this um, illusion that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. So, you know, you're going to have the right answer, of course. So all you have to do is just let the decision maker know that you're the one with the right answer and then um, everything changes, right? And when we're talking about families, we know that's just not the way that it works. So if you you and I are spouses and you're behaving in a way that is contrary to my closely held values and beliefs. And I think that I can frame that as a legal argument somehow, just because I'm successful actually isn't going to change the way that you behave. Um, and the notion that I have that I'm right and I will be successful is generally a fiction as well, because even if I'm correct in law, my sense of rightness and how that will apply does... Uh, 
and how that will like show up in our relationship is not necessarily a straight line. And I think that's the biggest misconception from the public's perspective. And then from the becoming a lawyer perspective, um, I think that there is a Let's see, how can I, if it, like, there's sort of this notion that if you're going to be successful as a lawyer, you're going to be able to pay your bills, you need to be a corporate commercial lawyer, or you could be a criminal lawyer and represent people that um, have maybe done bad things, but they have lots of money. Uh, and in family law, there is this idea that if you're going to practice family law, just you're, you're going to hit really a glass ceiling in terms of your ability to earn income. And I don't disagree that that does happen. Uh, but it certainly doesn't have to be like that. And it also doesn't have to be that the only way that you're making money as a family lawyer is by unnecessarily like stripping families of their wealth, uh, because it is still about there being efficiency and providing excellence in your service, because the more you can, um, the 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 better your service, the more likely that family is then going to tell somebody else. And so you're just, it's economy of scale. It doesn't mean that you have to only have files that have huge net worth that spread over 10 years. You can have more files if you're able to deal with them in an efficient manner. Right. So speaking of excellence of service, as I mentioned briefly at the top of the episode, you started your own firm, Pango Collaborative Law and Mediation, in 2015. What inspired the decision to start your own practice? Um, I had been practicing at my previous firm for 10 years. And so it was sort of this anniversary date for me where I was engaging in reflection and thinking about how I began my journey um, in my initial journey to, you know, law was this idea that I'd be working for myself with in our family. And that was just not the way it had played out. And I was um, super like happy with where I was working and what had occurred in my first 10 years of my career. I loved the the place I was working. They were very, um, I, I was a little bit different because right from the beginning when I applied to article, I had asked for an articling position on a part-time basis. Um, I had a baby during my articling year and uh, they allowed me to bring my baby to work and I nursed my baby at work and I had, you know, there were lots of things that were just maybe unconventional that my firm that I was very, and I worked for a national law firm. So it was um, unusual, but it was wonderful. And yet at 10 years in, I thought, what do I want my next 10 years to look like? And where I had started from with this idea of the autonomy and independence of having my own practice, which was consistent with how I had lived my life up to that point as an entrepreneur, it was, I think if I don't do this now, I might not do it ever because 10 years goes by really quickly. And in another 10 years, would I have the energy? Would I be able to overcome my fears that, you know, are inherent in doing something that's so significantly different and risky? And um, I really wanted to focus very much exclusively on being a collaborative practitioner and a, a mediator. And when you work in a larger firm, sometimes your responsibilities are going to shift depending on the needs of the larger organization. So would you say that specialization and autonomy are the sort of primary work lifestyle differences? Has that sort of conception been true? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's great. Yes. 
So given that you do sort of work for yourself, how do you maintain that sort of elusive concept of work-life balance when you are running your own practice? So I actually don't know that there's such a thing as work-life balance. And I get asked often to speak on this topic. And I think it's because, you know, people recognize, well, I have my own practice. I have a large family. I do a number of different things. So somehow this idea of work-life balance must be something I have knowledge on. So I always go and speak to it to say, well, I actually don't know if that's a thing. Um, And it's certainly not something I strive for. Um, I think of it more as integration. How do I integrate Mm -hmm all the things that are important to me into those 24 hours every day that we are gifted with. And so that means sometimes I need to spend more time at the office because there's something pressing happening. Other times it might mean I don't have anything to do with the office because there's something pressing with my family. Or maybe we've gone on a vacation and it's not uncommon for me to enjoy being on the beach with my laptop or my phone and or I'm reading I'm doing some kind of work and so for the outsider they would look at that and say this is a woman who like cannot you know separate herself from her work and they'd be right but that's not my objective my I I am really enjoying sitting on the beach while I'm doing work like believe me because it's like combining two things that I love and doing them at the same time and I think that this notion that we might have as a culture that somehow you always have to kind of um, allocate time and resources kind of equally across different areas that are important to you is is also a fiction because you do what you need to do that's the most pressing in the moment but being mindful of how it's impacting different areas of your life and then constantly make some adjustments as you go along. Right. So it's not sort of two separate cups. It's just making sure that one doesn't exactly. run over kind of thing. Gotcha. Yes, that's a great way to, to frame it. Thank you. So when you first made the shift to running your own practice, I imagine that's a completely different skill set that you have to pick up when you've been practicing at a large firm for 10 years. Absolutely. What did you learn? What did you have to develop when you were sort of first making that shift? Mm -hmm. So it's very terrifying. And I didn't do it sort of overnight when I made the decision that I, you know, thought, yes, I think I would like to. Um, I set a six month target for myself to say, all right, what, what would I need to put my mind to over the course of six months in order to have things in place to make this feasible. And uh, so that was kind of the, that was the first thing. And then what would be the biggest um, differences would really be about administration and management. Because, uh, you know, at the firm that I was at, because it was a large firm, national firm, there was a department for everything. So all I had to do was interact with my clients, put my mind to my tasks. And there were magical things happening in the background, like somehow the light, you know, the power was paid for and there was clients were billed and then somehow I had money deposited in my account and you know none of those things are anything that I had any knowledge of how I came together let alone some of the other professional requirements like um Uh, interactions with the law society, for example, to have your permits and your insurance in place and the various other kinds of uh, uh, professional 
uh, requirements that need to be checked off. Those were things that happened in the background. And so learning all of that and then somehow still incorporating, making sure all those tasks got done within what you still only have being those 24 hours every day. Right. Do you have any sort of words of wisdom for anyone thinking about starting their own practice? Mm -hmm. I would say if I could go back in time, the two things that I would do differently is before I had even started to kind of think about what I wanted to put in place, I would have probably gone out for lunch with half a dozen um, sole practitioners to be able to say, so what would you, what advice would you give me as potentially a person going out and opening up her own practice? And because everybody's experience is going to be different. So I don't think it's sufficient to just like ask one person because what their experiences and their challenges might not be the same as someone else. So at least half a dozen people get some, you know, knowledge from their own experience. And then I did, the second thing would be identify a mentor, likely out of those half a dozen people. And I mean, if you have lunch with half a dozen people and you don't like any of them, have lunch with another half a dozen and really find somebody that you really <laughs> click with and then ask them if they'll mentor you and set up a a bit of a schedule where you're connecting with them at least once a week to be able to say, so here are the next five steps that I'm planning on implementing. Do you think that makes sense? And then you have this accountability to be able to go back the next week and say, hey, I only got three out of the five steps done, but here were my challenges. What are your thoughts? And get feedback that way. And just not be so arrogant as to think that just because you're a lawyer, you know what the heck you're doing. And I think that that's the biggest thing that I would have told my former self if my future self could have met with her is I just said, you are too arrogant. You think think that you just know what to do. And because of that, there were lots of mistakes that I made that I had to then redo. And that there's a cost to that, um, a financial cost, a loss of time, um, a loss of confidence in yourself. And they, they were things that I could have easily avoided if I had just not been um, so um, convinced that I knew what I was doing. I love that answer. That's the ethos of the show is seeking out expert opinions. So I'm happy to hear that. (laughs) So wondering if we can turn now to sort of the process of practicing collaborative law. What is collaborative law and what are some of the core values of that approach? Okay. So I'd like to start by making a distinction because a lot of people will say, well, I'm a collaborative lawyer. I practice collaboratively. I get along with people. We have four-way meetings, that kind of thing. And absolutely, as an adjective or an adverb, I I always get those confused, collaborative is a descriptor. But when we're talking about the collaborative law process, if, if the listeners can remember, this is a capital C collaborative process, which means it is not just about, you know, trying to be open to ideas and working cooperatively with somebody else. This is an actual um, defined process. And so to keep that in mind, that there's specialized training to be a collaborative practitioner, the capital C collaborative practitioner. So the essence behind collaborative practice is that the parties and all the professionals involved, so those would be lawyers as well as any neutral um, other 
your helping professionals that assist sign a participation agreement that says they, if settlement cannot be achieved, the lawyers will not represent the clients into any other type of proceeding, and nor will the neutral professionals. Everything has been without prejudice, and we do not pass our files on to litigation counsel. And we're ultimately making a commitment uh, together as a team, including the clients, that we're committed to settlement. So it's not like how in a more um, perhaps conventional setting where perhaps two lawyers that get along well, and we'll talk right now just in the context of family, though collaborative practice can be a um, practice in other areas, is that, you know, if you and I are the lawyers on a family file and and we're chit-chatting about things, maybe we get along really well and we're really trying to help the family, but we're not protected by the participation agreement. If at some point I say something that you're like, hmm, that would be really, that's good to know for if I have to bring an application later. You're tucking that back into the back of your mind strategically as you would rightfully do in that adversarial litigation process to be able to bring that to advance your client's case at a later date if we aren't able to make an arrangement. So the true essence of capital C collaborative practice is that there is no strategic planning happening because we don't have to do that. We signed a commitment that says our only goal as lawyers is to help this family get to their objectives and we're in no way ever going to act adverse to each other or to the other client. Right. So you made mention earlier of a team of mutual professionals. So besides the two lawyers, who else might be sort of on the roster for that? It's one of the like fantastic features to collaborative practice that can also be extended to mediation and other processes. It's just perhaps not as well known or thought of. So collaborative practice is truly interdisciplinary. We meet with the clients to talk about who else might be uh, a professional that could really help them. So here are some common ones, though the the list is really, there's no like um, limit to who you might identify, but the common ones, a financial neutral. So that's somebody who helps the parties identify um, and collect all of their financial and property information and to put their mind to tax consequences and short-term benefits and long-term goals where they're, you're, because not every asset is the same. If Are you going to divide your investments equally by way of a spousal rollover, or are you going to do a trade-off? One is going to have liquid accessibility that might meet one party's money needs and personality, but could be to the detriment of the other party who, when they realize they have no liquidity, now they're accessing debt in order to pay their bills. And so a financial neutral helps the parties look at the whole picture to say, here are the the different things that you need to take into consideration as you're problem solving, how you're going to divide out the property and share the finances through your support regime. There are also, uh, and these mental health professionals go by various different handles. They might be called a divorce coach or a separation coach or simply a mental health professional, typically a, a social worker or somebody with a counseling background and qualifications. And their focus is on helping people learn how to communicate effectively throughout the negotiations. They are not there to provide therapy, so they don't um, unpack the baggage, so to 
say they just help the parties walk across the street with their bag intact. Um, uh, another subspecialty of that mental health professional would be somebody who's uh, part of the team for the children. So a child specialist, sometimes depending on the age of the children involved, that child specialist might be participating in the process with the child's voice. So having met with the, the children and coming into the negotiations and the meetings to say, here are the things that the children have expressed are important. Sometimes the child specialist, though, is involved with um, helping the family address special needs that the child might have. Or if the, the child or the children are struggling with going back and forth between the parents' homes, that the child specialist can work with the parents to help them think about, well, what are some other options that will still maximize the time with each parent, but in a way that's truly child-centered and not about what each parent is thinking that they need or want. Um, other kinds of more non-traditional but still super helpful uh, neutrals can be an elder um, if uh, this is an Indigenous family, uh, somebody from the faith community if the family's um, faith is important to them. Uh, there uh, can sometimes be even a mediator that could come into a collaborative process because it allows the collaborative lawyers to be able to focus more on the substance of what's being negotiated rather than worry about the management of the process and the agenda and the coordinating of schedules. Right. So how do participants benefit from this approach compared sort of directly to a traditional legal practice? Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's hard for me to be like, how does anybody even have that as a question? Because it seems so obvious to me having practiced in this area for so long. And yet I realize that it goes back to your earlier comment, Abby, about how like we have cultural influences and even within law school, we're, we're sort of told a story about how the world works within the um, the world of the practicing of law that then we don't realize that maybe that's not actually the way that the world experiences it. So um, when it comes to the difference between participating in, and I'm going to use some intentional language here, an adversarial litigation process that results supposedly in a winner or loser, but ultimately has all sorts of fallouts that you could certainly see where people are, you know, all coming out, having lost to some respect, where there is no uh, space for neutrality, for objectively looking at information. Instead, you have the wars of the expert. Um, and there would be no, like, there's no other way to do that in an adversarial system, because if both experts agreed, then you wouldn't, it wouldn't be an issue that was being put before the court. Even the way in which the language is that, you know, it's one parent versus the other parent in our pleadings. Um, all litigation lawyers structure their pleadings and their materials with the most extreme position so that there's that wiggle room. So holding that, you know, um, description, hold on to that description. Now, compared to 
uh, a collaborative environment where the focal point is on the children when there's children. And even when there aren't children, the focal point is still in an interest-based um, framework. So what are the individual and the family priorities? What are their expectations? Testing some of the assumptions rather than arguing about who has the right interpretation or the correct facts of what has happened. Uh, what are the party's concerns? What are the hopes and goals that people have? Not just for an outcome on one solitary decision, but for the rest of their lives. Um, this is about long-term outcomes rather than wins and losses in short-term kind of games where it's strategic in trying to um, get the upper hand. And the reason why the, and, uh, and I'll be so bold as to say that the adversary, adversarial litigation system is not appropriate for families, is reflected even in our legislative language. The fact that we have a divorce act that says and requires now there's a legal duty for parents to acknowledge their responsibility to protect the children from the conflict of their proceedings and that we talk about parenting arrangements and anything that's involving children where these parents are going to have a lifelong connection to each other because families are systems. So to damage the systems by having an, I mean, this word, it's an adversarial litigation process. So we are asking, on one hand, we're saying to families, hey, social science research tells us this is very damaging to your children like very damaging to your children to have them be placed in the middle of a conflict. But, you know, do that while you are being adversaries to each other over here to seek justice. Um, none of that, really, when you deconstruct that is congruent. Um, and so that's why any out-of-court process that can assist families in thinking about short-term and long-term outcomes and goals, what are the needs, keeping the focus on the children, not making it about who's right or wrong or what position is a stronger position, any process that can take that different framework is going to be a better outcome for families than an adversarial one. Now, what makes a collaborative process particularly effective is because everybody is working together in terms of that team approach of for the best outcome possible, while the individual lawyers are really functioning as advocates within that process for their clients so that their client can really understand the implications of the decisions that they're making, what their rights and obligations are under that legal framework, and to be able to have a, a voice really effectively within the negotiations that are occurring in the collaborative process. Right. So this is obviously a very client-centric approach to law. Lawyers spend a lot of time advocating for people and for families, guiding them through a difficult process in what's generally a very challenging time in their life. So how do you maintain that balance between being an involved and engaged advocate and making sure that professional boundaries sort of stay intact? Mm -hmm. I think you continually have to go back to 
um, ethics and also the legislation and reading case law and also reading and learning about other things like being a trauma-informed practitioner, attending courses that did teach you these things, um, learning about psychology, learning about um, family systems, learning about child development, because there is a... Um, a misconception that our obligation as lawyers, when when we are obligated to be zealous advocates, that the misconception is somehow that means that we just need to argue for something that the client has decided is what they want. Is being a zealous advocate is a much more nuanced uh, obligation. We have an obligation to be thinking about what will be in our client's best interests. In in all of the different ways in which they have to interact with their life. And so if their children aren't going to be well, we have not fulfilled our obligation as a zealous advocate. So those professional responsibilities and the ethics that are part of it, it's, it's about continually feeding yourself the good information so that you are continually educating yourself, staying on top of current developments. Um, I mean, every day it feels like, but certainly over the course of a decade, there are the things that we learn about how families operate, the impact of things like, you know, when I think about when I grew up and my dad smoked a cigarettes and, you know, as a kid, like I didn't like the smell of it, but it wasn't until I became an adult that it was like, everybody was like, yeah, you know what? Uh, smoking, it, it does have adverse effects. So we, we learn as a culture and as a society. And I believe that the legal profession, it needs to understand that, um, that the findings and the research and the um, uh, that, you know, things that other professions are, are learning are really important for us to know in order for us to fulfill that obligation of being a zealous advocate. So continuing education is the key for strong advocacy. Continuing education, continual education, and also connecting with people on it. Like you say, like this is one of your missions with this podcast is that um, with your show is that I'm always trying to think about who is out there, who's written a book, who has um, gone to, and spoke at a conference or who has somebody else talked about that sounds like they have some information that maybe I don't have or can explain something for further to me and try to continue those connections and always be learning from other people in addition to um, engaging in CPD types of activities. Now that we have a more informed perspective on what collaborative law is and how you as a practitioner approach collaborative law, I'd like to switch gears a little bit over to the recent legislative changes in Saskatchewan. So in Saskatchewan and in some other provinces like Ontario, which is where I am right now, uh, dispute resolution is mandatory for civil cases. So whether it be some sort of conference, mediation sessions, or some other alternative, a dispute resolution process has to be undertaken before parties can bring a matter to court. So the crux of this legislative update in Saskatchewan is that this mandatory dispute resolution now applies to some family law matters as well. So Bills 97 and 98 were passed in the Legislative Assembly in 2018, and regulations have been rolled out geographically across the province, starting in Prince Albert in 2020, and sort of it continues to expand across the rest of the province. 
So what are some of the basic sort of features of this legislative change? Mm-hmm. So the, um, the basic feature is that before you can continue through the court after the close of pleadings, you must have evidence of having participated in one of a number of different um, dispute resolution process options. So our regulations uh, identify mediation, collaborative law, the use of a parent coordinator, or having um, gone through an arbitration process. Now there's a fifth category that is kind of an other at the moment that the regulations have not defined, but it's leaving some space for the potential as we continue to implement this across the province, that there may be other types of processes that we discover would be appropriate. And of course, my mind um, does go to the thought of some Indigenous practices like um, healing circles or um, utilizing an elder from your community that maybe doesn't meet the requirements to be recognized as a family mediator under our regulations, but would be somebody that would be very effective in helping a family work through or at least attempt some early dispute resolution. So so that's an area of potential development that the government recognized and and has held open there. So as it stands right now, though, that's a mediation collaborative process, parent coordination or arbitration. And when parties have participated in one or more of those processes, the service provider that they worked with signs a, a certificate of participation that gets filed with the court and then the family can continue through the court process should they determine that that's necessary. Of course, the idea here is is that the parties will participate in some sort of early dispute resolution process that will keep them from having to go to court. Right. This is largely mandatory across the province, but where do exemptions kind of come into play? So there is a provision that allows for you to bring an application to be exempted where there's been violence, um, where there's been an abduction, um, like a child abduction, or if there are some some sort of like urgent circumstances. Now, if it's something that's urgent, that may not mean you're fully going to be exempt forever. It may be that the court's willing to consider maybe it's an ex party application or an initial application to deal with that urgent matter. But then say before you can continue with other things, then you would return um, to have to complete an early dispute resolution process. There are um, exceptions too, where if you can't find the other party, so or the other party is just not engaging, but the rules allow for the court to impose quite severe penalties on another party for refusing to participate. And what's really interesting about how our regulations are worded is that the service provider is the one who determines whether there's been participation or not. We've already seen some case law on this topic because the the parties, if they're not in the right mindset, um, because perhaps it's too early in their separation, they're still in their grieving process, they you know are like, okay, I have to participate in mediation, fine, I'll show up and sit with my arms crossed and frowny face and I won't say a word, but then give me my certificate. Well, the service provider is allowed to say, eh, I don't, that doesn't really, like, you haven't actually participated, so I'm not giving you your certificate yet. And so this will probably be the subject of some litigation over time as we try to figure out what does it mean to truly participate. So far, 
Our court has said, at the very least, you need to have attended one joint meeting. And if your service provider feels that you attended that meeting, but you weren't actually prepared, you know, there there is that discretion there to be able to say, mm, I don't know that you've fully participated. But on the other hand, the service provider can't have unrealistic expectations of what the parties are going to accomplish simply by having attended one meeting. For professionals who want to offer early family dispute resolution services, uh, how do they get licensed to do so? And who are some of the bodies that are in charge of that? So mediation is an unregulated industry, which means anybody could hang out their shingle and say, I'm a mediator. However, in Saskatchewan, in order to be recognized as somebody who's qualified to sign the certificate of participation, our Ministry of Justice, our minister needs to recognize you formally as a family mediator. So just to clarify, you can be a family mediator. You don't need any special qualifications, but if you want to be one that can also sign a certificate for parties, then you have to meet the requirements as uh, published under the regulations. So it to be able to get those qualifications, there um, are a variety of places in which you can get training. And the ADR Institute of Canada as a national organization is one that provides a nationally recognized trainings and designations. Um, my office, in addition to being a, a law firm, we also provide training training through the Common Sense Mediation Academy to assist other people who, you know, whether they're lawyers or in other professions that would like to be able to get uh, meet the requirements and to have the requisite kind of training and experience. To be a collaborative practitioner, so capital C, collaborative practitioner under the regulations, you simply need to be a member of our provincial association. However, to be a member of the provincial association, you do have to have participated in interdisciplinary training, and uh, that is available you know, across the world, really. There's the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals that um, will recognize a certain training uh, options that are out there. And then Saskatchewan would typically say, yes, if IACP has recognized it, then we will as well. To be a parent coordinator or an arbitrator is very similar. There's just a certain set of um, amount of training and experience. And for both um, a parent coordinator and as far as an arbitrator is concerned, it's really important to have some experience in the family law arena. Right now, you can only be recognized as a family arbitrator in Saskatchewan if you're also a lawyer. So there, you know, and these these will be moving targets because we went from, you know, not having any of these professions, like some of these professions we didn't have at all in Saskatchewan, like there were no, no parent coordinators whatsoever. And then all of a sudden you have this legislation that says, hey, this is one of the options. So it, it, you, the requirements re necessary to start to get some service providers uh, are going to probably be a little less stringent than they will be over time as we develop more of a base of those professionals. As a practitioner in this area, did you need to prepare for this legislative change at all? 
Well, for me, I was really fortunate because it's the area that I've been working in. So I, you know, have, it was very easy for me to be able to say to the minister, hey, can I be on your list? Because I've been practicing as a mediator for some time. I was already a member of the Collaborative Professionals of Saskatchewan. And um, I don't personally have an interest in parent coordination. I do have a staff member who's a parent coordinator, so was able to participate in training. Um, I am on the, the board currently the president of the ADR Institute of Saskatchewan. So part of the lead up to this legislative change was our organization was involved in some discussions with the ministry and other stakeholders as to, well, what would be appropriate to require for training and experience in these various different um, service provisions. And so having some knowledge about what was being talked about and having the ability to provide some input um, also because we do do training. Um, that was also part of it. And I think the biggest thing for me was actually um, really my investment in our province and desire to have this be very successful in its rollout, specifically with respect to mediators. So we really worked very hard uh, leading up to the legislative change to provide as many trainings as possible for people to learn mediation. Uh, we've developed practice groups and other kinds of ongoing supports. This is one thing to learn the technical process of something, something entirely like imagine if you went to driver's ed and you learned all of the technical processes, but you never drove anywhere. Um, or you did drive with your instructor, um, but you never drove by yourself. At some point, it's like it would be hard to get into your vehicle. It would the knowledge would be there, but you would maybe like stall a bit and maybe you'd crash here and there. So it's it's really important to to bridge that gap between getting your education, your understanding of process to when you're actually working with real people and real families. And how do you bridge that gap? Well, it goes back to the mentorship. It goes back to continuing to feed yourself the educational content, but then also being able to practice and be part of a community of practitioners. So I would say, you know, professionally, that was really where we were putting most of our focus in preparation for this is to empower the province so that it could be successful. Right. So a lot of that work is just making sure that there is an adequate supply of professionals to handle the surge in demand. Absolutely. Right. If we could maybe turn to some of the policy rationale and benefits of mandatory dispute resolution, how do you think from sort of your practitioner's perspective that families in Saskatchewan are going to benefit from this policy? Um, I think if you lined up, you know, 10 people on the street and asked them, you know, hey, what do you know about mediation? You know, probably seven out of 10 of them would talk, say meditation. So, you know, there's, uh, first of all, you know, the, the people don't really even understand that there are other options apart from the adversarial system. Um, it's what they, you know, nobody, they, there are no TV shows or movies that are like following people going through an amicable separation and divorce using collaborative process or mediation. So people don't even know. And what stories do they hear? What stories are repeated? Well, stories that are repeated are the treat, like the, the disasters, right? So people are not talking enough about their successes in their transition from living together under one roof into living separate and apart from each other, but still 
being a family system, because ultimately you never sever the family system. It, it continues past a judgment of divorce. So the, the biggest impact this is going to have, in my opinion, is increasing the level of awareness by the public that uh, when they go to see a lawyer now, the lawyer, even um, a litigation lawyer, is obligated now because they have to, they, they've always had a duty and obligation to explain to their family law client about the benefits of negotiation and about mediation. And here in Saskatchewan, we also had collaborative law included in our legislation. Those were requirements, but there's something different between maybe a lawyer who hasn't made that paradigm shift that says, yeah, here are these things. I don't know much about them, but now I've told you about them and sign and carry on compared to this new environment where it's going, the litigation lawyer may still not have made the paradigm shift, but they have to say to their client, hey, sorry, you have to choose one of these. You have to participate in one of these before I can carry you on further through the litigation process. So everybody is going to, over time, develop more awareness about the options. And it doesn't have to be just the the one way that people seem to be conditioned, which is that court, I have to go to court. Um, the other thing that will be a huge benefit, in my opinion, is actually just simplifying things. So there are some families that their situation is not really very complicated. I mean, they might own a house or they maybe just are renting a house. They don't have a lot of um ask like a lot of property or a lot of debt and um, maybe they have they they get along pretty well in terms of their parenting and so they can utilize one of these processes to actually just kind of get things in place and carry on right prior to this and for the people who really were like why does this have to be complicated um and they were scared about going and seeing a lawyer and suddenly having things get really costly and complicated a lot of those families end up doing nothing and they then they carry on their lives without having any kind of structure and it can cause them some real significant problems whether that shows up when they're dealing with their estate or it shows up when they're wanting to repartner or it shows up when they're looking to get a passport for their child. And so hopefully this will by simplify, like per, having people understand that there can be simpler uh, ways to sort out their matters will hopefully also encourage more people to go and meet with lawyers to better understand their legal rights and obligations and put the structure in place that will really support them and create a framework for what the rest of their life is going to look like. Families are really essentially empowered to decide what form yeah. of, if any, sort of dispute resolution might work best for them. So that's exactly. kind of the major theme there. Well, that's great. So if I could turn maybe from some of the benefits to some of the potential challenges with implementation of this kind mm -hmm. of legislation, uh, something that sort of came to me that I'd like to ask you about are access to justice concerns. Mm -hmm. So things like cost, things like access to professionals if you're in a rural community, uh, are there remote or online options available? So how has the government sort of taken steps and maybe even practitioners taken steps to ensure that everyone has access? Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I'm going to answer those questions specifically, but I do want to preface it by saying it's this kind of a red herring because you could ask all those same questions about the current system. 
right? Mm-hmm. What if, what do people do that don't have money? What do the people do that are living remotely and there's no judicial center in their neighborhood? And, you know, so all of those same questions apply to the current system. Um, and uh, yes, rightfully so, they would be something we have to be mindful of whenever we're making change. Uh, but I think there's a risk sometimes when we're trying to make change that these red herrings create these like barriers that we think cannot be dealt with and we forget that in the absence of trying something different, those barriers actually still exist. Absolutely. And so how can we creatively you know, problem solve and, and think outside of the box? One of the benefits that came of the whole COVID experience was the re- the um, ability to appreciate that we can do things remotely, right? We can actually have meetings. We can, um, you know, even in the court system, but of course, in my context, I'm saying prior to COVID, there was definitely a school of thought that was, well, you could never have a collaborative meeting unless you were in person or uh, properly mediate unless you were in person. Well, that might still be ideal for many people, but knowing that you can, if somebody's in a remote area and assuming, of course, that they have internet access or data that you could really keep your costs down and simplify things by having remote, like virtually held meetings. And so that's, you know, one thing that's been great in terms of the whole COVID experience, but also can be part of how do we help people that um, might be experiencing challenges and getting access to service providers, as well as um, other types of things, like even you know, whether you live rural or urban and you have children, not so easy to just like leave your job for a couple of hours in the middle of the afternoon and find childcare or somebody to pick up your children from school uh, to do anything, right? Go to the dentist, let alone go to a court hearing or to mediation. So being able to have that flexibility around participating from uh, somewhere that, yeah, I mean, you still want to have a private space, but somewhere that's not going to require attention to all those logistics that are barriers to justice. Um, There, if, you know, if I'm trying to um, be a little bit more objective, because of course, it's always hard when you're like, but this is so good. I, I know that (laughs) there are truly are some challenges, like the fact that um, for some people, this requirement will cause some delays for them. And if they are in a relationship of coercive control, it's a great opportunity for them controlling spouse to uh, find ways to um, delay meetings or find ways to just manipulate that requirement to make things worse overall. Um, however, they're doing that in the court system as well. And our, we have requirements in Saskatchewan uh, for every service provider um, in these alternative processes to uh, be trained in family violence. And there is no, like, that is not a requirement for family law lawyers or for our family court judges. Um, So the ability to be trauma-informed, recognize the dynamics of intimate partner violence and adjust your process for that is actually greater in these alternatives, these, you know, the early dispute resolution processes that are now being mandated than they are in the court system. So as much as that is in 
definitely a risk. Um, it exists in both environments and you can actually be more mindful about how you engage and develop your process um, outside of the court to deal with some of that. Due to the sort of inherent nature of how dispute resolution works, there are actually ways that it can mitigate some of these access to justice challenges that we see in a more adversarial system. Oh, that's great. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, Charmaine, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. It was wonderful. My name is Abby Shields, producer of The Law School Show and host of this week's episode. I was joined today by Charmaine Panko, collaborative lawyer and mediator to discuss legislative changes in Saskatchewan, which mandated early family dispute resolution. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in, and we will be back with more next week on the next episode of The Law School Show. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.